So my, uh, I use a word that my wife thinks that I made up. And I think it's real. It's called underwhelming. You've heard the term overwhelming, which you kind of have an expectation and something kind of exceeds that. I've never heard anybody ever use the term underwhelming or even just whelming. Like, hey, this kind of met my expectations. But one of the things that I, like going through life, pay attention to, hey, these are my expectations. And was this meal like overwhelming or like underwhelming? Did this like satisfy me with the thing that I was hoping for? Or is this the kind of, um, is this the, my wife's term for it actually is a Justin Bieber. She's like, it's really popular, but I don't like this. Uh, it's kind of my wife's term for it. But I was thinking about that today because we're starting this series in the book of Luke where it really starts with these are the disciples' expectations. And oftentimes we come going through life, go in, through with these expectations of this is how things should be. It could be we get to marriage and we're like, this is what marriage is going to be like. And then we go, oh, marriage is nothing like I thought it was going to be. Or we get a job and they promise us the world and you're going to make all this money and it's going to be easy and these things are going to go this way. It's like, oh, this is not really what I expected. And it could be like a, a trip. It could be something else. Or it could be just something really serious. Like these are expectations I had in my relationship and this is not working. And when we get to that point, it can be dangerous, but the, the really dangerous thing is when we get into a relationship with God and we go, God, this is what I expected of you. Why, why I, got, I did these things for you and I expected the Christian life to go this way. And here I am, here I am with this like, God, what are you up to? This is, this is not what I counted on. So as we start this new series, The One, this, we get to, we get to uh, walk through the book of Luke verse by verse. Uh, in chapters 22, 23, and 24, looking to see how Jesus is the one. But today we're going to be looking at, at the beginning before Jesus is crucified, where we really begin to see these are the disciples' expectations. And how, what does Jesus have to say speaking in to those expectations? How does his, his arrest, how does his trial, how do these things help us reshape us coming to Jesus? the way we, that we normally do. So, if you've got a Bible, grab, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. It says that Jesus, so this is after the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus has prophesied about his death. He's talked about betrayal, but Verse 39 starts with, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a th stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Let's pray. 
God, anytime we open your word, we want to hear very clearly from you. We know that these are your words, and so you, um, you call to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us um, to see how Jesus remakes our expectations, doing something bigger and better and grander than we could have ever imagined. In Jesus' name, amen. So these, these first verses, we're going to be going through several more scenes here, but these first verses really lay out Jesus' agony in this moment. That Jesus, it's a normal thing to go to the Mount of Olives, but then he begins, it's just this weird series of events. He's saying, guys, pray that you won't enter into temptation. I, um, one of the things that I keyed in on is the fact that angels came and strengthened Jesus, and yet he was still sweating drops of blood. Like that's the kind of agony Jesus was in in this moment. That his disciples are, you know, a stone's throw away. So I'm imagining, I don't know, 50 yards. Just a funny description. Like this is about how far we were, about as far as we can throw a rock. But Jesus is there on his own praying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So in this moment, Jesus is in deep agony, deep anguish. Even the strength of the angels doesn't really lighten the load for Jesus. And so then he rises back from prayer going and he finds that even there in sorrow and in anguish. The passage says that he, um, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow and says, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. There's something in this moment that even in Jesus' agony, he's keying in on their, uh, on their temptation. I want you guys to be strong. I don't want you to be tempted. And so Jesus in this moment, total agony, even the angels can't help him, still concerned for his disciples because he knows that they're going to also be tested, that they're going to be facing temptation. It reminds me of in the Lord's Prayer how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know, keep, uh, keep us from temptation. Uh, lead us not into temptation. This was one of Jesus' great concerns for his disciples. And even in the depth of his agony, in verses 39 through 46, Jesus is still concerned for his disciples. Then we go from Jesus' agony to verses 47 to 53 that begins to lay out the, 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 this story spiraling downward. Verse 47 says, When he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. This moment, so we've gone from Jesus' agony to Jesus' betrayal, which in a sense is even worse. This is the moment where Judas comes and doesn't just say, hey, he's the man with the point and points at him, but with a sign of affection goes to kiss him and say, oh, master and teacher. And so he's, Jesus is being betrayed by Judas with a kiss, that, that sign of intimacy. And so at this moment, Judas disoriented is turned against Jesus. Hey, you're not the kind of Messiah that I hoped for. You're not the Messiah that we're looking for. Then, and so he turns on Jesus. But then Peter, we know this from the book of Mark, that Peter is actually the one who pulls his sword out and cuts off 
the servant, the servant of the high priest's right ear. Like, well, if Jesus, if this is what you're doing, well, we can stop this. We can fix this. I can do something about this. And so he pulls his ear out or his sword out and chops his ear off. And then again, like, so Jesus in agony is concerned for his disciples. And then in this moment, he's betrayed. And yet he's concerned for the servant of his enemy because he says no more of this. And he heals the man's ear. Even in this moment, he's been sweating drops of blood and he's tired. And he's, I think, frankly, he's scared based on what, but he, he is still concerned enough to love his enemies. And so then Jesus calls out to the religious leaders like, why are you doing this? You could have arrested me at any point, but now you're doing it in the middle of the night in secret. And so in, in this moment, we end up finding Jesus betrayed. So we've gone from Jesus in agony to now Jesus in betrayal. And if you've ever been betrayed, I had a friend that's turned on you, a family member that said something they shouldn't have said, somebody that's done something they shouldn't have done. We begin to understand, wow, this is getting worse for Jesus. It's getting more personal. And then verse 40, 54 to 62 tells us, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. I love this detail. She looked closely or stared. She stared at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This story is getting worse. Jesus in agony and anguish. Then we get Jesus betrayed. And then we get Jesus alone. Because this is the moment where Peter, the, the rock, the one that Jesus could always count on. He's the guy that walked on water with Jesus. He's the guy that was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. In that moment, Peter three times says, I don't even know him. And so what we find as the story, this detail kind of focuses on Peter. It's really showing us that in this moment, Jesus is alone. Jesus is absolutely alone in this moment. Um, this is the moment that Jesus had already predicted and said, Peter, this is going to happen. And Peter was like, no, it will never happen. I will never disown you. But even in that, we find this story spiraling down. Jesus in agony, Jesus betrayed, Jesus alone. And then we end up, with Jesus shamed. Verses 63 to 65 tell us, the man who was guarding Jesus, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? They said, And they said many other insulting things to him. Uh, your translation may say blasphemed him. But this is the moment where in that spiral, Jesus is now totally ashamed. Where the, the soldiers who have him in custody, who have him tied up, make fun of him, cover his head so that he can't see, began beating him and making fun of him. And we have in this moment this, this picture of Jesus, though he's done nothing wrong, totally ashamed. The kind of moment where maybe if we've dealt with a bully, we can begin to identify a little bit, that we know a little bit of what 
what this is like. That moment of there's nothing that I can do. I'm helpless. These people are against me. And that's the picture that we have here is this story that's going farther and farther down. And they ends with this detail that I love that they ended with them saying blasphemous things about Jesus. This detail that, that they've identified that this guy claims to be God. And so they begin mocking him at that very point. That you can't be God if you're going to be like this. If you can't prophesy who's hit you when you can't see, then you must not be God. It doesn't say all of the details of what they were saying, but that like in this moment they identified this can't be what God's like. This can't be. There's no way that you can be God. And so we get this picture here. Uh, Jesus in agony, Jesus betrayal, Jesus alone, Jesus shamed, that is actually calling us to reshape all of our expectations of what deliverance looks like around the actual Jesus. This this uh, this passage says you guys have this expectation of what victory looks like in the Christian life. You have you have this. If you're like me, we have these un, un maybe expressed expectations of this is what it will be like if I follow Jesus. This is what my family will be like. This is what my kids will be like. This is what my career looks like. This is what my Christian life will look like. And this passage says, no, reshape those things. What deliverance? What the Christian life? What victory looks like around the actual Jesus? And I want to show you from this from this story two things, two takeaways. One is that following Jesus is going to be very disorienting. And so this is a call to embrace that. This story sets us up with disciples who have expectations that God is going to send a deliverer and he's going to deliver us from the Romans, that one day we're going to be delivered. And so the disciples have been following along, expecting a deliverer. And then we end up finding in this story, disciples like Judas turning away in betrayal and Peter turning away in fear and denial. We have the, this, this, here's the expectation, and when Jesus doesn't meet it, everybody and everything falls apart. The leaders of the, the Jews, they've been looking for a deliverer. The Pharisees in particular were thinking, if we can obey God enough, then he will deliver us. If we can be good enough, then God will love us, and he will give us our kingdom back, and we won't have to serve the Romans. We won't have to do all of these things anymore. And this what we find in this story is that Jesus is incredibly disorienting for leaders that say, hey, this is how the Christ, this is how following God and walking with God has to be because they can't reshape it enough to see that Jesus could be it. And then we have soldiers that are in the end of this story and the soldiers are like, this can't be God. Here he is tied up, blindfolded, tired, and alone. This cannot be God. And this calls us to go Following Jesus is going to be disorienting. We, we get to the Easter story and we get to the death, the trial and the death and the resurrection. And we have to begin to go and learn from it. Not just Jesus died for my sins, but following Jesus means he's going to do things that don't make sense to me. That following him means that all of my expectations are going to be blown up. What we find, what the question that I kind of, I think of in this passage is, the, the soldier's question is really the, 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 the central part of the matter. How can you be in custody? Can you be beaten, mocked, and still win? Like that's kind of the central question of Christianity. How can somebody who is in custody, who is beaten, who is mocked, who is going to die, still win? The soldiers could never reconcile it. 
And so they couldn't follow, and so they wouldn't follow Jesus. The religious leaders couldn't reconcile this, this man who is a healer and who is peaceful, but who loves prostitutes and sinners. This one who, who has no time for the self-righteous, but has lots of time for a woman that's been married five times. And they're like, this can't be God. This can't be God's way. And so the call to us is to go, to, to look at scripture and say, God, I have unwritten expectations of what you're following you is going to be like and what you're going to be like. But I am going to set those aside and take the real Jesus. Because you tell me that this Jesus actually can take victory from that place of being beaten, being blindfolded, and still winning. The, the, the Easter story is actually an invitation for us to go that God specializes in victory from the places that we think are disorienting. And this, this can't go this way. That's what we find in the story of the, the that's what the, we find in the story of Moses and the Israelites being uh, delivered out of Egypt. Even the people were like, you've brought us out into the desert to die. And God parts the Red Sea so that they go over on dry land. But even after that point, they kept getting to a place where they're like, but our expectation is for a certain kind of food. And so, God's specialty was is actually to take deliverance from those places that look like no deliverance could ever come. And so the, the call to us is to say, God, as I look for a deliverance in this area of my life, in this area of sin, in this area of disappointment, God, as I look for deliverance from these things, I'm not going to trust in my expectations. I'm going to trust that you can turn, turn this seeming failure into victory. This thing that seems like it's just going to destroy me and it's going to crush me. God, I'm going to trust that you actually can bring victory out of this, but that it might not be the kind of victory that I'm expecting. The call in this is to say following Jesus is going to be disorienting, but I'm going to embrace Jesus even as when he's disorienting. And then the second thing I want to show you from this passage is that Jesus' victory is actually better than we could ever imagine. Jesus' victory in this passage is better than we could have ever imagined. Notice the spiral in the story is it starts with Jesus in agony. And then it, and Jesus is in the garden sweating drops of blood that if an angel came to strengthen me with a message from the Father, I think I would get some strength from. Jesus was in deep agony in this moment that even that didn't relieve. Then we, it moves to Jesus betrayed. I'm not sure there's a worse feeling than feeling like the people that are close to you are turning against you, saying things and doing things. And so here I am betrayed and I don't know who to turn to and I don't know who to trust. Then we, we find Jesus alone. If, if betrayal is bad, but being alone after being betrayed is just sinking deep and deep and deep. And then we find Jesus ashamed. And the reason that this is here, spoiler alert, Jesus actually comes back to life. And we often just go, Jesus died and Jesus is now back to life. He's forgiven my sins and we can move on with our life. But, but we, and so we begin to put Jesus' victory in a small little box. Not that forgiveness is not a big deal, but we begin to put it in a small box. And what this passage calls us to do is to say that Jesus was actually in agony so that I could have victory over my deepest anguish because I won't have to face the anguish that I deserved to face. Jesus has victory over betrayal 
Not just people betraying me, but me betraying God. This passage begins to call us to Jesus has victory over abandonment because he didn't deserve it like I do. And yet he beats it and he wins his victory over abandonment. Jesus was alone so that I don't ever have to be alone. This passage calls us to say that Jesus, who didn't deserve it, was covered in shame so that I don't have to be covered in shame. Even for the things that I should be covered in shame for. This Jesus in this points to a deeper and more lasting problem is that anguish and betrayal and abandonment and shame are my condition. And Jesus has victory over that. Jesus is in this pointing to the, to the disciples and the Israelites and us that there is a deeper problem than somebody being in power over us like the Romans. And so Jesus' victory is a victory over our greatest problem so that we don't have to face those kinds of things. And so then, so Jesus' victory is better than we could have ever imagined. I, um, the kid, our kids love Disney movies, in particular Peter Pan. And there's a line in Peter Pan I use all the time because the dad gets mad at the kids at the very beginning of the movie. And he's upset because all the things are going wrong and he blames it all on the dog and says the dog is no longer going to be in the nursery. And he takes the dog out. And the kids are like, poor Nana. Poor, poor Nana. And I say that all the time because just, you know, when the kids is crying, I'm like, oh, poor Oscar. Poor, poor Oscar. Or so-and-so poor. But I in particular say that at, at, around Easter because often we talk about Jesus the way the kids talk about Nana there. Like, oh, poor Jesus. Poor, poor Jesus had to die on the cross. What, we inst- what I want to suggest is that instead what we get here is that this picture that Jesus is having victory over our greatest problems in these places. That we, like the disciples, can have expectations of God. You're going to make my life work like this. And poor Jesus, he had to go through so much. Instead, this passage is a call to us to go, not poor Jesus. The Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. That Jesus is going through agony and betrayal and alonement and alone abandonment and shame because he has joy in his eyes on the other side of it. And so Jesus' victory at Easter, Jesus' victory in these moments is actually good news for us that we can be free from all of these things. It's a better victory than we could have ever imagined. It's not just, hey, you can be free from your sin, but you can be free from the the deep agony of being alone. The deep shame that you've borne your whole life because of what you've done or what's been done to you, what's been said about you. This passage says you can be free and you can live with a better and more lasting victory. And so this, this beginning of this series called The One, where we begin to go, Jesus is the one that God promised who is bigger and better. He, it, this passage, this story begins calling us to reshape our expectations for deliverance around the actual Jesus, where we find he's going to disorient all those things, but then his victory is going to be better than we could have ever imagined. We go, how can that be mine? How can I know for sure? Oh, Jesus reshapes our expectations. How can that be mine personally? This sounds like good news. I'd love, I would love to be free from agony, betrayal, abandonment, and shame, dealing with these things on my own. The story of the Bible is the story that God made the world and he made it good. And he He put Adam and Eve in it and said, you will live in this and care for this as little kings under me. But instead of living that way, Adam and Eve and you and I, 
And every person after them said, no, we will live our own way, doing our own thing. And so agony and agony comes from that moment of betrayal of Adam and Eve saying, no, we will live our own way. We will do our own thing. And so then Adam and Eve, who thought they wanted to be alone, found themselves alone with shame. And you and I find ourselves in that same place. But then instead of, and the Bible says that God will one day punish all of his enemies with death, death spiritually and death physically, death in hell forever. And so, but instead of leaving us there, we find ourselves in this part of the story where Jesus, who has lived the life that we should live, is now going to die the death that we should die so that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ. Repent is a fancy word for a changing of the mind, a changing of my life. I will go this, instead of going this way, I will turn and go that way. And the Bible says that those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus can actually know that Jesus has done this in my place and his victory is actually a victory for me. So then this whole passage becomes ours. And when we, if you're like me, we go through and go, following Jesus can be disorienting. And I tend to not embrace it. I tend to push it away and say, God, it's got to be better than this. You've got you to do something different. The pain is too great. We instead find Jesus who's like, it doesn't matter how disorienting this is. Father, your will, not mine. What we find in this is a Jesus who looks at the worst possible death but knows that on the other side of that is a victory better than anybody could have ever asked for, than anybody could have ever dreamed for. So then when that becomes ours, we can begin to imagine, how would my life change if I was free of shame? How, can I, how would my life change if I was free of the weight of betrayal? How would my life change if I am free of abandonment because I know that God will not and has not abandoned me. How would that change in my life? How would that change in my block? How would that change if my neighbors actually came to understand that Jesus' victory is better than we could ever imagine, even in the middle of a crazy crisis? How, how, would, our, how would our community change if there were more and more people grasping this idea that, hey, my expectations are messed up. I'm going to take Jesus because his victory is better. That's good news for a, a, a person, for a family, for a block, and for a community to get this idea. The actual Jesus is better than we could have ever imagined. Let's take him. Let's follow him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us clearly that Jesus went through agony and betrayal and alonement and abandonment and shame in our place so that we don't have to bear it. God, we pray, um, we pray for everybody that is watching this, that they would come to know and understand and receive that gift right where they're at in the middle of all of the craziness of life. They would come to understand that your victory is for them. In Jesus' name, amen.